Chapter 20 of The Italian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Italian by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 20. Read by Gary Day. I am settled and bend up each corporal agent to this terrible seat. Shakespeare. Scadoni had returned from the beach to the house in a state of perturbation that defied the control of even his own stern will. On the way thither he met Spalatro, whom, as he dispatched him to Elena, he strictly commanded not to approach his chamber till he should be summoned. Having reached his apartment he secured the door, though not any person except himself was in the house, nor any one expected, but those who he knew would not dare to intrude upon him. Had it been possible he would have shut out all consciousness of himself also. How willingly would he have done so? He threw himself into a chair, and remained for a considerable time motionless, and lost in thought. Yet the emotions of his mind were violent and contradictory. At the very instant when his heart reproached him with the crime he had meditated, he regretted the ambitious views he must relinquish if he failed to perpetrate it, and regarded himself with some degree of contempt for having hitherto hesitated on the subject. He considered the character of his own mind with astonishment, for circumstances had drawn forth traits of which till now he had no suspicion. He knew not by what doctrine to explain the inconsistencies, the contradictions he experienced, and, perhaps, it was not one of the least that in these moments of direful and conflicting passions his reason could still look down upon their operations and lead him to a cool though brief examination of his own nature but the subtlety of self-love still eluded his inquiries and he did not detect that pride was even at this instant of self-examination and of critical import the master-spring of his mind in the earlier dawn of his character this passion had displayed its predominancy whenever occasion permitted and his influence had led to some of the chief events of his life. The Count de Marinella, for such had formerly been the title of the confessor, was the younger son of an ancient family who resided in the Duchy of Milan, and near the feet of the Tyrolean Alps, on such estates of their ancestors as the Italian wars of a former century had left them. The portion which he had received at the death of his father was not large, and Scadoni was not of a disposition to improve his patrimony by slow diligence, or to submit to the restraint and humiliation which his narrow finances would have imposed. He disdained to acknowledge an inferiority of fortune to those with whom he considered himself equal in rank, and as he was destitute of generous feeling and of sound judgment, he had not that loftiness of soul which is ambitious of true grandeur. On the contrary, he was satisfied with an ostentatious display of pleasures and of power, and thoughtless of the consequence of dissipation, was contented with the pleasures of the moment, till his exhausted resources compelled him to pause and to reflect. He perceived, too late for his advantage, that it was necessary for him to dispose of part of his estate, and to confine himself to the income of the remainder. Incapable of submitting with grace to the reduction 
which his folly had rendered expedient, he endeavoured to obtain by cunning the luxuries that his prudence had failed to keep, and which neither his genius nor his integrity could command. He withdrew, however, from the eyes of his neighbours, unwilling to submit his altered circumstances to their observation. Concerning several years of his life, from this period nothing was generally known, and when he was next discovered, it was in the Spirito Santo convent at Naples, in the habit of a monk, and under the assumed name of Scidoni. His air and countenance were as much altered as his way of life. His looks had become gloomy and severe, and the pride which had mingled with the gaiety of their former expression occasionally discovered itself under the disguise of humility, but more frequently in the austerity of silence and in the barbarity of penance. The person who discovered Scedoni would not have recollected him had not his remarkable eyes first fixed his attention and then revived remembrance. As he examined his features, he traced the faint resemblance of what Marinella had been, to whom he had made himself known. The confessor affected to have forgotten his former acquaintance, and assured him that he was mistaken respecting himself, till the stranger so closely urged some circumstances that the former was no longer permitted to dissemble. He retired in some emotion with the stranger, and, whatever might be the subject of their conference, he drew from him, before he quitted the convent, a tremendous vow to keep secret from the Brotherhood his knowledge of Skidoni's family, and never to reveal without those walls that he had seen him. These requests he had urged in a manner that at once surprised and awed the stranger, and which, at the same time that it manifested the weight of Skidoni's fears, bade the former tremble for the consequence of disobedience, and he shuddered even while he promised to obey. Of the first part of the promise he was probably strictly observant. Whether he was equally so of the second does not appear. It is certain that after this period he was never more seen or heard of at Naples. Scadoni, ever ambitious of distinction, adapted his manners to the views and prejudices of the society with whom he resided and became one of the most exact observers of their outward forms, and almost a prodigy of self-denial and severe discipline. He was pointed out by the fathers of the convent to the juniors as a great example, who was, however, rather to be looked up to with reverential admiration than with an hope of emulating his sublime virtues. But with such panegyrics their friendship for Scadoni concluded. They found it convenient to applaud the austerities which they declined to practice. It procured them a character for sanctity, and saved them the necessity of earning it by mortifications of their own. But they both feared and hated Scadoni for his pride and his gloomy austerities, too much to gratify his ambition by anything further than empty praise. He had been several years in the society, without obtaining any considerable advancement, and with the mortification of seeing persons who had never emulated his severity raised to high offices in the church, somewhat too late he discovered 
that he was not to expect any substantial favour from the brotherhood, and then it was that his restless and disappointed spirit first sought preferment by other avenues. He had been some years confessor to the Marchesa di Vivaldi, when the conduct of her son awakened his hopes, by showing him that he might render himself not only useful, but necessary to her by his counsels. It was his custom to study the characters of those around him, with a view of adapting them to his purposes, and, having ascertained that of the Marchesa, these hopes were encouraged. He perceived that her passions were strong, her judgment weak, and he understood that, if circumstances should ever enable him to be serviceable in promoting the end at which any one of those passions might aim, his fortune would be established. At length he so completely insinuated himself into her confidence, and became so necessary to her views, that he could demand his own terms, and this he had not failed to do, though with all the affected delicacy and finesse that his situation seemed to require. An office of high dignity in the church, which had long vainly excited his ambition, was promised him by the Marchesa, who had sufficient influence to obtain it. Her condition was that of his preserving the honour of her family, as she delicately termed it, which she was careful to make him understand, could be secured only by the death of Elena. He acknowledged with the Marchesa that the death of this fascinating young woman was the only means of preserving that honour, since, if she lived, they had every evil to expect from the attachment and character of Vivaldi, who would discover and extricate her from any place of confinement, however obscure or difficult to access, to which she might be conveyed. How long and how arduously the confessor had aimed to oblige the Marchesa has already appeared. The last scene was now arrived, and he was on the eve of committing that atrocious act, which was to secure the pride of her house, and to satisfy at once his ambition and his desire of vengeance, when an emotion new and surprising to him had arrested his arm and compelled his resolution to falter. But this emotion was transient. It disappeared almost with the object that had awakened it, and now, in the silence and retirement of his chamber, he had leisure to recollect his thoughts, to review his schemes, to reanimate his resolution, and to wonder again at the pity which had almost won him from his purpose. The ruling passion of his nature once more resumed its authority, and he determined to earn the honour which the Marchesa had in store for him. After some cool and more of tumultuous consideration, he resolved that Elena should be assassinated that night, while she slept, and afterwards conveyed through a passage of the house communicating with the sea, into which the body might be thrown and buried with her sad story beneath the waves. For his own sake he would have avoided the danger of shedding blood, had this appeared easy, but he had too much reason to know she had suspicions of poison, to trust to a second attempt by such means and again his indignation rose against himself, since by yielding to a momentary compassion he had lost the opportunity afforded him of throwing her unresistingly into the surge. Spalatro, 
as has already been hinted, was a former confidant of the confessor, who knew too truly from experience that he could be trusted, and had, therefore, engaged him to assist on this occasion. To the hands of this man he consigned the fate of the unhappy Elena, himself recoiling from the horrible act he had willed, and intending, by such a step, to involve Spalatro more deeply in the guilt, and thus more effectually to secure his secret. The night was far advanced before Scedoni's final resolution was taken, when he summoned Spalatro to his chamber to instruct him in his office. He bolted the door by which the man had entered, forgetting that themselves were the only persons in the house, except the poor Elena, who, unsuspicious of what was conspiring, and her spirits worn out by the late scene, was sleeping peacefully on her mattress above. Scadoni moved softly from the door he had secured, and, beckoning Spalatro to approach, spoke in a low voice, as if he feared to be overheard. "'Have you perceived any sound from her chamber lately?' said he. "'Does she sleep, think you?' "'No one has moved there for this hour past, at least,' replied Spalatro. "'I have been watching in the corridor till you called.' and should have heard if she had stirred. The old floor shakes so with every step. "'Then hear me, Spalatro,' said the confessor. "'I have tried and found thee faithful, or I should not trust thee in a business of confidence like this. Recollect all I said to thee in the morning, and be resolute and dexterous, as I have ever found thee.' Spalatro listened in gloomy attention, and the monk proceeded. It is late. Go, therefore, to her chamber. Be certain that she sleeps. Take this, he added, and this, giving him a dagger and a large cloak. You know how you are to use them. He paused, and fixed his penetrating eyes on Spalatro, who held up the dagger in silence, examined the blade, and continued to gaze upon it with a vacant stare as if he was unconscious of what he did. "'You know your business,' repeated Scadoni authoritatively. "'Dispatch. Time wears, and I must set off early.' The man made no reply. "'The morning dawns already,' said the confessor, still more urgently. "'Do you falter? Do you tremble? Do I not know you?' Spalatro put up the poignard in his bosom without speaking threw the cloak over his arm, and moved with a loitering step towards the door. "'Dispatch!' repeated the confessor. "'Why do you linger?' "'I cannot say that I like this business, signor,' said Spalatro surlily. "'I know not why I should always do the most, and be paid the least.' "'Sordid villain!' exclaimed Scadoni. "'You are not satisfied, then?' "'No more a villain than yourself, signor,' retorted the man, throwing down the cloak. "'I only do your business, and tis you that are sordid, for you would take all the reward, and I would only have a poor man have his dues. Do the work yourself, or give me the greater profit.' "'Peace!' said Scadoni. "'Dare no more to insult me with the mention of reward. Do you imagine I have sold myself? "'Tis my will that she dies. This is sufficient.' and for you the price you have asked 
has been granted. It is too little, replied Spalatro, and besides, I do not like the work. What harm has she done me? Since when is it that you have taken upon you to moralise, said the confessor, and how long are these cowardly scruples to last? This is not the first time you have been employed. What harm has others done to you? You forget that I know you. You forget the past. No, signor, I remember it too well. I wish I could forget. I remember it too well. I have never been at peace since. The bloody hand is always before me, and often of a night, when the sea roars and the storms shake the house, they have come, all gashed as I left them, and stood before my bed. I have got up and ran out upon the shore for safety. Peace, repeated the confessor, where is this frenzy of fear to end? To what are these visions, painted in blood, to lead? I thought I was talking with a man, but I find I am speaking only to a baby, possessed with his nurse's dreams. Yet I understand you. You shall be satisfied. Skidoni, however, had for once misunderstood this man, when he could not believe it possible that he really was averse to execute what he had undertaken. Whether the innocence and beauty of Elena had softened his heart, or that his conscience did torture him for his past deeds, he persisted in refusing to murder her. His conscience or his pity was of a very peculiar kind, however, for though he refused to execute the deed himself, he consented to wait at the foot of the back staircase that communicated with Elena's chamber, while Skedoni accomplished it, and afterwards to assist in carrying the body to the shore. "'This is a compromise between conscience and guilt, worthy of a demon,' muttered Skedoni, who appeared to be insensible that he had made the same compromise with himself not an hour before, and whose extreme reluctance at this moment to perpetrate with his own hand what he had willingly designed for another ought to have reminded him of that compromise. Spalatro, released from the immediate office of an executioner, endured silently the abusive yet half-stifled indignation of the confessor, who also bade him remember that, though he now shrunk from the most active part of this transaction, he had not always been restrained in offices of the same nature. By equal compunction, and that not only his means of subsistence, but his very life was at his mercy, Spalatro readily acknowledged that it was so, and Skidoni knew too well the truth of what he had urged, to be restrained from his purpose by any apprehension of the consequence of a discovery from this ruffian. "'Give me the dagger, then,' said the confessor after a long pause. "'Take up the cloak, and follow to the staircase. Let me see whether your valour will carry you thus far.' Spalatro resigned the stiletto, and threw the cloak again over his arm. The confessor stepped to the door, and trying to open it, "'It is fastened,' said he in alarm. "'Some person has got into the house. It is fastened.' "'That well may be, Senor," replied Spalatro calmly, "'for I saw you bolt it yourself after I came into the room.' "'True,' 
said Scadoni, recovering himself. That is true. He opened it, and proceeded along the silent passages towards the private staircase, often pausing to listen, and then stepping more lightly. The terrific Scadoni, in this moment of meditative guilt, feared even the feeble Elena. At the foot of the staircase, he again stopped to listen. "'Do you hear anything?' said he in a whisper. "'I hear only the sea,' replied the man. "'Hush! It is something more,' said Scadoni. "'That is the murmur of voices.' They were silent. After a pause of some length, "'It is perhaps the voice of the spectres I told you of, Signor,' said Spalatro with a sneer. "'Give me the dagger,' said Scadoni. Spalatro, instead of obeying, now grasped the arm of the confessor, who, looking at him for an explanation of this extraordinary action, was still more surprised to observe the paleness and horror of his countenance. His starting eyes seemed to follow some object along the passage, and Scadoni, who began to partake of his feelings, looked forward to discover what occasioned this dismay, but could not perceive anything that justified it. "'What is it you fear?' said he at length. Spalatro's eyes were still moving in horror. "'Did you see nothing?' said he, pointing. Scadoni looked again, but did not distinguish any object in the remote gloom of the passage, whither Spalatro's sight was now fixed. "'Come, come,' said he, ashamed of his own weakness. "'This is not a moment for such fancies. "'Awake from this idle dream!' Spalatro withdrew his eyes, but they retained all their wildness. "'It was no dream,' said he, in the voice of a man who is exhausted by pain, and begins to breathe somewhat more freely again. "'I saw it as plainly as I now see you.' "'Dotard! What did you see?' inquired the confessor. It came before my eyes in a moment, and showed itself distinctly and outspread. What showed itself? repeated Scadoni. And then it beckoned, yes, it beckoned me, with that blood-stained finger, and glided away down the passage, still beckoning, till it was lost in the darkness. This is a very frenzy, said Scadoni, excessively agitated. Arouse yourself and be a man. Frenzy? Would it were, Signor? I saw that dreadful hand. I see it now. It is there again. There! Scadoni, shocked, embarrassed, and once more infected with the strange emotions of Spalatro, looked forward, expecting to discover some terrific object. But still nothing was visible to him, and he soon recovered himself sufficiently to endeavour to appease the fancy of this conscience-struck ruffian but Spalatro was insensible to all he could urge, and the confessor, fearing that his voice, though weak and stifled, would awaken Elena, tried to withdraw him from the spot to the apartment they had quitted. "'The wealth of San Loreto should not make me go that way, signor,' replied he, shuddering. "'That was the way it beckoned. It vanished that way.' Every emotion now yielded with Scadoni to that of apprehension left Elena, being awakened should make his task more horrid by a struggle, and his embarrassment increased at each instant, for neither command, menace, or entreaty could prevail 
with Spalatro to retire, till the monk luckily remembered a door which opened beyond the staircase, and would conduct them by another way to the opposite side of the house. The man consented so to depart, when, Skidoni unlocking a suite of rooms, of which he had always kept the keys, they passed in silence through an extent of desolate chambers, till they reached the one which they had lately left. Here, relieved from apprehension respecting Elena, the confessor expostulated more freely with Spalatro, but neither argument nor menace could prevail, and the man persisted in refusing to return to the staircase, though protesting at the same time that he would not remain alone in any part of the house, till the wine with which the confessor abundantly supplied him began to overcome the terrors of his imagination. At length his courage was so much reanimated that he consented to resume his station, and await at the foot of the stairs the accomplishment of Skidoni's dreadful errand, with which agreement they returned thither by the way they had lately passed. The wine with which Skidoni also had found it necessary to strengthen his own resolution did not secure him from severe emotion when he found himself again near Elena, but he made a strenuous effort for self-subjection as he demanded the dagger of Spalatro. "'You have it already, signor,' replied the man. "'True,' said the monk. "'Ascend softly, or our steps may awaken her.' "'You said I was to wait at the foot of the stairs, signor, while you—' "'True, true, true,' muttered the confessor, and had begun to ascend, when his attendant desired him to stop. "'You are going in darkness, signor. You have forgotten the lamp. I have another here.' Skedoni took it angrily without speaking, and was again ascending when he hesitated, and once more paused. The glare will disturb her, thought he. It is better to go in darkness. Yet he considered that he could not strike with certainty, without light to direct his hand, and he kept the lamp, but returned once more to charge Spalatro not to stir from the foot of the stairs till he called and to ascend to the chamber upon the first signal. I will obey, signor, if you, on your part, will promise not to give the signal till all is over. I do promise, replied Skidoni. No more. Again he ascended, nor stopped till he reached Elena's door, where he listened for a sound, but all was as silent as if death already reigned in the chamber. This door was from long disuse, difficult to be opened. Formerly it would have yielded without sound, but now Skidoni was fearful of noise from every effort he made to move it. After some difficulty, however, it gave way, and he perceived, by the stillness within the apartment, that he had not disturbed Elena. He shaded the lamp with the door for a moment, while he threw an inquiring glance forward, and when he did venture further, held part of his dark drapery before the light, to prevent the rays from spreading through the room. As he approached the bed, her gentle breathings informed him that she still slept, and the next moment he was at her side. She lay in deep and peaceful slumber, and seemed to have thrown herself upon the mattress, 
after having been wearied by her griefs for though sleep pressed heavily on her eyes their lids were yet wet with tears while skidoni gazed for a moment upon her innocent countenance a faint smile stole over it he stepped back she smiles in her murderous face said he shuddering i must be speedy he searched for the dagger and it was some time before his trembling hand could disengage it from the folds of his garment but having done so he again drew near and prepared to strike her dress perplexed him it would interrupt the blow and he stooped to examine whether he could turn her robe aside without waking her as the light passed over her face he perceived that the smile had vanished the visions of her sleep were changed for tears stole from beneath her eyelids and her features suffered a slight convulsion she spoke skidoni apprehending that the light had disturbed her suddenly drew back and again irresolute shaded the lamp and concealed himself behind the curtain while he listened but her words were inward and indistinct and convinced him that she still slumbered his agitation and repugnance to strike increased with every moment of delay and as often as he prepared to plunge the poniard in her bosom a shuddering horror restrained him astonished at his own feelings and indignant at what he termed a dastardly weakness he found it necessary to argue with himself and his rapid thoughts said do i not feel the necessity of this act does not what is dearer to me than existence does not my consequence depend on the execution of it is she not also beloved by the young vivaldi have i already forgotten the church of the spiritus santu this consideration reanimated him vengeance nerved his arm and drawing aside the lawn from her bosom he once more raised to strike when after gazing for an instant some new cause of horror seemed to seize all his frame and he stood for some moments aghast and motionless like a statue his respiration was short and laborious chilly drops stood upon his forehead and all his faculties of mind seemed suspended when he recovered he stooped to examine again the miniature which had occasioned this revolution and which had lain concealed beneath the lawn that he withdrew the terrible certainty was almost confirmed and forgetting in his patience to know the truth the imprudence of suddenly discovering himself to elena at this hour of the night and with a dagger at his feet he called loudly awake awake say what is your name speak speak quickly elena aroused by a man's voice started from her mattress when perceiving skidoni and by the pale glare of the lamp his haggard countenance she shrieked and sunk back on the pillow she had not fainted and believing that he came to murder her she now exerted herself to plead for mercy the energy of her feelings enabled her to rise and throw herself at his feet be merciful o father be merciful said she in a trembling voice father interrupted skidoni with earnestness and then seeming to restrain himself he added with unaffected surprise why are you thus terrified for he had lost in new interests and emotions all consciousness of evil intention 
and of the singularity of his situation. "'What do you fear?' he repeated. "'Have pity, Holy Father!' exclaimed Elena in agony. "'Why do you not say whose portrait that is?' demanded he, forgetting that he had not asked the question before. "'Whose portrait?' repeated the confessor in a loud voice. "'Whose portrait?' said Elena with quick surprise. "'Ay, how came you by it? Be quick. Whose resemblance is it?' "'Why should you wish to know?' said Elena. "'Answer my question,' repeated Scadoni with increasing sternness. "'I cannot part with it, Holy Father,' replied Elena, pressing it to her bosom. "'You do not wish me to part with it. Is it impossible to make you answer my question?' said he, in extreme perturbation and turning away from her. "'Has fear utterly confounded you?' Then, again stepping towards her and seizing her wrist, he repeated the demand in a tone of desperation. "'Alas, he is dead, or I should not now want to protect her,' replied Elena, shrinking from his gasp and weeping. "'You trifle,' said Scadoni with a terrible look. "'I once more demand an answer. Whose picture?' Elena lifted it, gazed upon it for a moment, and then, pressing it to her lips, said, "'This was my father.' "'Your father?' he repeated in an inward voice. "'Your father?' and shuddering turned away. Elena looked at him with surprise. "'I never knew a father's care,' she said, "'nor till lately did I perceive the want of it. "'But now—' "'His name?' interrupted the confessor. "'But now,' continued Elena, "'if you are not as a father to me, to whom can I look for protection? His name, repeated Scadoni, with sterner emphasis. It is sacred, replied Elena, for he was unfortunate. His name, demanded the confessor furiously. I have promised to conceal it, father. On your life I charge you to tell it. Remember, on your life. Elena trembled, was silent, and with supplicating looks implored him to desist from inquiry, but he urged the question more irresistibly. His name, then, said she, was Marinella. Scadoni groaned and turned away, but in a few seconds, struggling to command the agitation that shattered his whole frame, he returned to Elena and raised her from her heels, on which she had thrown herself to implore mercy. "'The place of his residence?' said the monk. "'It was far from hence,' she replied, "'but he demanded an unequivocal answer, "'and she reluctantly gave one. "'Scadoni turned away as before, "'groaned heavily, and paced the chamber without speaking, "'while Elena, in her turn, "'inquired the motive of his questions "'and the occasion of his agitation.' but he seemed not to notice anything she said, and wholly given up to his feelings was inflexibly silent, while he stalked with measured steps along the room, and his face, half hid by his cowl, was bent towards the ground. Elena's terror began to yield to astonishment, and this emotion increased when, Scadoni approaching her, she perceived tears swell in his eyes, which were fixed on hers, and his countenance soften 
from the wild disorder that had marked it. Still he could not speak. At length he yielded to the fullness of his heart, and Skidoni, the stern Skidoni, wept and sighed. He seated himself on the mattress beside Elena, took her hand, which she, affrighted, attempted to withdraw, and when he could command his voice, said, Unhappy child, behold your more unhappy father. As he concluded, his voice was overcome by groans, and he drew the cowl entirely over his face. My father? exclaimed the astonished and doubting Elena. My father? And fixing her eyes upon him, he gave no reply, but when a moment after he lifted his head, Why do you reproach me with those looks? said the conscious Scadoni. Reproach you? Reproach my father? repeated Elena, in accents softening into tenderness. Why should I reproach my father? Why? exclaimed Scadoni, starting from his seat. Great God! As he moved, he stumbled over the dagger at his foot. At that moment, it might be said to strike into his heart. He pushed it hastily from sight. Elena had not observed it, but she observed his labouring breast, his distracted looks, and quick steps as he walked to and fro in the chamber. And she asked, with the most soothing accents of compassion, and looks of anxious gentleness, what made him so unhappy? and tried to assuage his sufferings. They seemed to increase with every wish she expressed to dispel them. At one moment he would pause to gaze upon her, and in the next would quit her with a frenzied start. "'Why do you look so piteously upon me, father?' Elena said. "'Why are you so unhappy? Tell me that I may comfort you.' This appeal renewed all the violence of remorse and grief, and he pressed her to his bosom, and wetted her cheek with his tears. Elena wept to see him weep, till her doubts began to take alarm. Whatever might be the proofs that had convinced Skidoni of the relationship between them, he had not explained these to her, and however strong was the eloquence of nature which she witnessed, it was not sufficient to justify an entire confidence in the assertion he had made or to allow her to permit his caresses without trembling. She shrunk and endeavoured to disengage herself. When, immediately understanding her, he said, Can you doubt the cause of these emotions, these signs of paternal affection? Have I not reason to doubt, replied Elena timidly, since I never witnessed them before? He withdrew his arms, and fixing his eyes earnestly on hers, regarded her for some moments in expressive silence. "'Poor innocent,' said he at length, "'you know not how much your words convey. "'It is true you have never known a father's tenderness till now.' His countenance darkened while he spoke, and he rose again from his seat. Elena, meanwhile, astonished, terrified, and oppressed by a variety of motions, had no power to demand his reasons for the belief that so much agitated him, or any explanation of his conduct. But she appealed to the portrait, and endeavoured by tracing some resemblance between it and Scadoni, to decide her doubts. The countenance of each was as different in character 
as in years. The miniature displayed a young man, rather handsome, of a gay and smiling countenance, yet the smile expressed triumph rather than sweetness, and his whole air and features were distinguished by a consciousness of superiority that rose even to haughtiness. Skedoni, on the contrary, advanced in years, exhibited a severe physiognomy, furrowed by thought no less than by time, and darkened by the habitual indulgence of morose passions. He looked as if he had never smiled since the portrait was drawn, and it seemed as if the painter, prophetic of Skidoni's future disposition, had arrested and embodied that smile, to prove hereafter that cheerfulness had once played upon his features. Though the expression was so different between the countenance which Skidoni formerly owned and that he now wore, the same character of haughty pride was visible in both, and Elena did trace a resemblance in the bold outline of the features, but not sufficient to convince her, without further evidence, that each belonged to the same person, and that the confessor had ever been the young cavalier in the portrait. In the first tumult of her thoughts, she had not had leisure to dwell upon the singularity of Skidoni's visiting her at this deep hour of the night, or to urge any questions, except vague ones, concerning the truth of her relationship to him. But now that her mind was somewhat recollected, and that his looks were less terrific, she ventured to ask a fuller explanation of these circumstances, and his reasons for the late extraordinary assertion. "'It is past midnight, father,' said Elena. "'You may judge, then, how anxious I am to learn "'what motive led you to my chamber at this lonely hour.' Scaloni made no reply. "'Did you come to warn me of danger?' she continued. "'Had you discovered the cruel designs of Spalatro? "'Ah, when I supplicated for your compassion on the shore this evening, "'you little thought what perils surrounded me, "'or you would you say true.' interrupted he in a hurried manner, but name the subject no more. Why will you persist in returning to it? His words surprised Elena, who had not even alluded to the subject till now, but the returning wildness of his countenance made her fearful of dwelling upon the topic, even so far as to point out his error. Another deep pause succeeded, during which Skidoni continued to pace the room, sometimes stopping for an instant to fix his eyes on Elena, and regarding her with an earnestness that seemed to partake of frenzy, and then gloomily withdrawing his regards, and sighing heavily as he turned away to a distant part of the room. She, meanwhile, agitated with astonishment at his conduct, as well as at her own circumstances, and with the fear of offending him by further questions, endeavoured to summon courage to solicit the explanation which was so important to her tranquillity. At length she asked how she might venture to believe a circumstance so surprising as that of which he had just assured her, and to remind him that he had not yet disclosed his reason for admitting the belief. The confessor's feelings were eloquent in reply, and when at length they were sufficiently subdued to permit him to talk coherently, he mentioned some circumstances concerning Elena's family that proved him at least to have been intimately acquainted with it, 
and others which she believed were known only to Bianchi and herself, that removed every doubt of his identity. This, however, was a period of his life too big with remorse, horror, and the first pangs of parental affection, to allow him to converse long. Deep solitude was necessary for his soul. He wished to plunge where no eye might restrain his emotions, or observe the overflowing anguish of his heart. Having obtained sufficient proof to convince him that Elena was indeed his child, and assured her that she should be removed from this house on the following day, and be restored to her home, he abruptly left the chamber. As he descended the staircase, Spalatro stepped forward to meet him, with the cloak which had been designed to wrap the mangled form of Elena, when it should be carried to the shore. "'Is it done?' said the ruffian, in a stifled voice. "'I am ready,' and he spread forth the cloak, and began to ascend. "'Hold, villain, hold,' said Scadoni, lifting up his head for the first time. "'Dare to enter that chamber, and your life shall answer for it.' "'What?' exclaimed the man, shrinking back astonished. "'Will not hers satisfy you?' He trembled for the consequence of what he had said, when he observed the changing countenance of the confessor, but Scadoni spoke not. The tumult on his breast was too great for utterance, and he pressed hastily forward. Spalatro followed. "'Be pleased to tell me what I am to do,' said he, again holding forth the cloak. "'Avaunt!' exclaimed the other, turning fiercely upon him. "'Leave me!' "'How?' said the man, whose spirit was now aroused. "'Has your courage failed too, signor?' "'If so,' I will prove myself no bastard, though you call me one. I'll do the business myself. Villain! Fiend! cried Scidoni, seizing the ruffian by his throat, with a grasp that seemed intended to annihilate him, when, recollecting that the fellow was only willing to obey the very instructions he had himself but lately delivered to him, other emotions succeeded to that of rage. He slowly liberated him, and in accents broken, and softening from sternness, bade him retire to rest. "'Tomorrow,' he added, "'I will speak further with you. As for this night, I have changed my purpose. Be gone!' Spalatro was about to express the indignation which astonishment and fear had hitherto overcome, but his employer repeated his command in a voice of thunder, and closed the door of his apartment with violence, as he shut out a man whose presence was becoming hateful to him. He felt relieved by his absence, and began to breathe more freely, till, remembering that this accomplice had just boasted that he was no bastard, he dreaded, lest by way of proving the assertion he should attempt to commit the crime from which he had lately shrunk. Terrified at the possibility, and even apprehending that it might already have become a reality, he rushed from the room and found Spalatro in the passage leading to the private staircase. But whatever might have been his purpose, the situation and looks of the latter were sufficiently alarming. At the approach of Scidoni he turned his sullen and malignant countenance towards him, without answering his call, or the demand as to his business there, and with slow steps obeyed the order of his master, that he should withdraw to his room. Thither Scidoni followed, and, having locked him in for the night, 
he repaired to the apartment of Elena, which he secured from the possibility of intrusion. He then returned to his own, not to sleep, but to abandon himself to the agonies of remorse and horror. And yet he shuddered like a man who has just recoiled from the brink of a precipice, but who still measures the gulf with his eye. End of chapter 20